go back next week. Some of our college students are also starting to make their trips uh, to school this past week. Andrew Osborne, one of the, the young men in our church, he, his family moved him up to University of West Florida where he um, begins football practices this week, so we're going to be praying for him. And then the young lady, Amy, who you saw just play and sing with the praise band. You've seen Amy before a number of times over the years. But uh, Amy and her mom leave on Tuesday for the short trip to Oklahoma um, as she begins school out there. So keep Amy and her mom in your prayers for that trip. And, and certainly Amy and Andrew and, and all these young people that will be starting kind of some of these next steps. But, but we do pray for Amy and, and we're going to miss her and look forward to uh, just looking forward to what, what God has in store for, uh, for her. Now... And a little bit later in the, the, the message this morning, we'll get to the scripture. So that's actually going to come a little bit later. And Joe, I didn't clue you in, but I got a couple slides we're going to get to in a couple minutes. So um, uh, Joe always rolls with me, and I appreciate that. I think I was about, I don't know, six or, or seven years old. It was my first year of, of organized baseball. But it really wasn't baseball, it was t-ball, if those of you that, that remember or maybe played or had kids that started learning playing uh, t-ball. And so, so I played um, in the league in Jacksonville where we lived. We played our ball games at the elementary school uh, that I attended. And um, I always remember that first year I played on the Firebirds with these hideous, ugly, brown jerseys. And we didn't care, you know, because they were jerseys and we got hats and that was cool. And, and I played at a time when we still kept score, even at age six and seven. We still kept score, which was important to a kid that was highly competitive like I was. And it was great because I got to start my first year of organized sports playing on a team that was perfect, absolutely perfect. We didn't win a single game the whole year. We, did, we lost every single game. But, but I remember a specific instance during that season, even at almost, you know, 38-some years ago, uh, when the, the way that the game was structured there where I played was it was a four-inning game, and every kid got to hit every inning. So you'd, you'd cycle through your entire lineup. Every kid got to, got to come to bat. And so, so the last batter was what was called the 10th batter. Now, there may be 11 or 12 kids on the team, but it didn't matter. That was the 10th batter. And the 10th batter had to be your best hitter because he or she had to clear the bases because there was nobody up behind the 10th batter. That was the end of, of the half inning. So he or she had to hit that ball far enough out to be able to basically hit a home run. That was your objective. You had to try to hit a home run. And so you, that, that's what your 10th batter. Now, a side story. I remember my first time that I got to be the 10th batter. I got up there, I was so proud, I was gonna, I was gonna whack that ball so far. I took a mighty swing and I hit the tee and the ball dribbled three feet out in front. Because all you had to do to end the inning then, to get as a, is the, you had to get the ball to home plate and the, the catcher would tag home and whoever was out still on the bases run and they were out. So that's so I, I, because I'm a gracious guy, I made it as easy as possible for them to pick up the ball. Literally, he didn't even have to get off home plate. He just picked up the ball, the inning was over. But the, the story I'm, I'm remembering specifically, the most vivid image I have, was um, whoever we were playing, it doesn't really matter, I don't really remember, but uh, I happened to be in the catcher position for their 10th batter. 
Now, the catcher in T-ball doesn't do much until the last batter because you then have to catch the ball and stand on home plate. So that was my role. So their 10th batter comes up and hits the ball out, my recollection, out in right field somewhere. Everybody starts running. Right fielder gets the ball. He throws it in probably around second base. Second baseman catches it, and he whirls and throws it home. That's where I came in. And I'm standing at home, and I'm riding. The ball's coming. And I'll never forget that ball came, and I stuck my glove right out there to catch it. Last minute, just like you'd expect. Here was the problem. I, my glove, I, I put my glove here when the ball was right about here. And the next thing I know, it's careening off my forehead. Pum. There if, if you're a baseball fan, a number of years ago, there's a major league um, highlight where Jose Canseco was playing right field for the Texas Rangers, and he's going back on it, and the ball bounces off his head and careens over the fence. Okay, it wasn't quite that bad, but that's how my memory of it is. The ball just, boom, right off my forehead. It didn't hurt physically, but I can remember, I mean, I still remember it very, very vividly. My pride was deeply wounded, and everybody got a big laugh out of it except me. But I realized that, that part of the, the thing that was still developing in me as, as a kid that age, um, and I will say I did get better as the years went on, um, but was... The, the failure there, I mean, it was a hand-eye coordination thing, but it was a, a failure to judge adequately depth perception. What happened was my glove went up too late, so the ball was already too close by the time I stuck the glove up. And, and that's, you know, that's an important skill in life, this ability to judge depth. Our, 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 our bodies are created. God created us, and our eyes work in such a way that, that when we see an object, when we see an image... The eyes, the left and the right, both process that image from different angles. Then your brain puts that image together. And part of what it puts together is your ability to judge not just height and not just length, but depth. It's the ability to see three-dimensionally. And what that does is that's what keeps us from bumping into things. Depth perception what allows me to stand here without worrying that I'm going to go too far and step off the edge. Dear Lord, help me never step off the edge. Accidentally, anyway. Depth perception is what allows you, when you have a conversation with somebody, to know where you need to stop so you don't smack into them. Or when you're driving your car and you, the car in front of you is stopped, depth perception is what allows you to stop and not hit them. But depth perception also serves to allow us to make judgments. When you are crossing the street, depth perception, not, depth perception not only tells you that there is a car in the distance moving towards you, but allows you to make a judgment about how fast that car is moving so that you know whether or not you can cross, whether or not you have enough time. When you're driving 675 or 62, a two-lane road, maybe you go to make a pass on a slower vehicle and there's a car moving in the other direction. Depth perception allows you, hopefully, to make the proper judgment as to whether or not you have the space to make that kind of a move. Depth perception is what should have allowed a six-year-old Chris to get his glove in front of the ball, not behind the ball, okay? That's what depth perception does. When we misjudge depth perception, when, when something doesn't fire right, when we don't make that judgment, or, or we don't see that properly, we make poor judgments because we're not seeing the full picture. And so it's a very important skill. Now, or ability, I should say. In 1911, an Italian psychologist by the name of Mario Ponzo 
which is a very good Italian name, Mario Ponzo, uh, he realized that you can fool the brain into seeing depth where it doesn't exist. Sometimes we don't see depth. Sometimes your brain thinks it sees depth and it's not there. It's called a Ponzo illusion. You may have seen these over the years. Joe, would you throw the first image up? That's a Ponzo illusion. Now, which one of those two horizontal yellow lines, which one's bigger? They're the same. See, some of you know where I'm going with this. All right, let me ask you this. Let me frame it differently. Which one looks bigger? The top one, right? The top one. I look at this and I say, in fact, it just it blows me away because it just seems so clear that top one's bigger. The reality is, as some of you know, those lines are exactly the same size. But the illusion, the, ver the vertical lines create the illusion of depth. It seems to us as if the, the tracks are running away from us, so our brain processes it in such a way that it thinks that back line is bigger because we know that something that is further away, though it seems smaller, isn't necessarily smaller because of depth perception. I know those of you that are sitting in the back row aren't you know, any different size than the people in the front row. You just seem smaller. My brain processes and redirects. So that's what, now this is how much I wasn't sure about this. This morning at about 8 o'clock before the first service, I have the slide up here and I'm literally standing right here just to make sure because I wasn't sure I believed it. But if you stood right here, you can see clearly that the lines are the same size because the depth gets taken out of the equation. It's a illusion. Here's another way. There's a, an image of three cars. I want you to look at this image and tell me which car is bigger. Which one's bigger? The one in the back, right? Yeah? You sure? Now, it's a Ponzo illusion. He's going to keep going. Whoever did this video is going to keep going. This is what threw you off. If those were actually cars parked on the side of a road, you would have been absolutely right because there would be depth there. But this is a photoshopped image. It's an image of a street with images of cars photoshopped on top of it. So your brain, your brain is processing depth. But in reality, that's just the same car posted three times, one after the other. It just it throws us off. Depth perception. So it can work in two directions. I don't know. Whoever did this video has fun with it. It'll stop here in a minute. It just, it's a YouTube video I found. So there it goes. Um, Death perception is important. It's important. Um, I still hear it. <laughs> it's, it's important physically. It's important um, for our functioning in the world around us. And, and when we lose that, and sometimes it does happen, it makes life difficult. We also need to embrace an opportunity for a spiritual depth. For, for us to be able to see deeper. What happens with two dimensions, we see height and length, that's obvious. We fail sometimes to see depth. That happens spiritually to us sometimes. We don't always see the deeper truth of circumstances around us. And, and when we come to our faith and we focus on the person of, of Christ, what we recognize is that Jesus always saw with a very deep spiritual depth. He saw beyond what, what was at the surface. He saw beyond the two dimensions. He saw a third dimension. And that's what allowed him to connect so powerfully with people. When Jesus came to a well in Samaria, as he was passing through and he encountered a woman who was drawing in the middle of the day, you know, at the surface level, that's a woman who needs to meet a physical need. But Jesus saw in her 
a woman that had been ostracized in her community. Jesus saw in her a woman that experienced brokenness in a number of places in her life. And in meeting a physical reality, in a physical encounter, he sees a much deeper spiritual truth. And he begins to minister to that need. And in doing so, transformation happens. Jesus does this over and over again as he, things are always deeper than they appear to be. And Jesus sees that. When, when Pharisees came to ask him questions, he recognized that there was jealousy at work there, and he refused to get trapped by their questions. But yet when Nicodemus comes to him, a Pharisee, he senses a spiritual hunger and, and, a, and, a, and a desire to, to, to connect deeper. Jesus sees the depth. And when we are called in, in a relationship with Christ, when we, we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, God starts to work in our lives so that we see deeper pictures. We study the scriptures. We begin to see not only where Jesus goes deeper, but where he reveals deeper truths to us. For instance, we have stories of healings in the scriptures. We have Jesus passing through and great crowds coming. If you remember, the gospels tell the story of a woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years who comes and grabs his cloak because she wants to be healed. Jesus senses that. But when he sees her, when he sees her, he calls her daughter her daughter because there was something deeper than just a physical need she'd been pushed to the margins of society she'd been shunned because of her illness and jesus recognized there's a deeper need she has when he's passing to a village and people are talking to him and all around him and yet he hears the cries of a blind beggar and he stops what he's doing to go address and spend some time with the blind beggar he heals a physical need in each of these situations and each of the many miracles that he does of healing he meets a physical need. He reveals the power of God in a, in a real and profound way, but there's a deeper truth. He's also revealing the compassion of God. The God who hears the cries, hears our cries, knows our needs, and he's beginning to reestablish worth. I mean, what he's doing is he's saying to that woman who's hemorrhaging, you're worthy, you're valuable, no matter what the world has been telling you. To that beggar on the side of the street that people would walk by every day, you're valuable, you're worth my time. Because we see the stories deeper. We see them in a far more profound way. When Jesus sees fishermen on the shore of Galilee, he sees the potential of disciples that can change the world. When he travels through Jericho and he looks up in a tree and sees a tax collector up so he can see him. Jesus invites himself over. If you know the story, Jesus invites himself over. That'd be me like grabbing you after church and going, hey, just so you know, Tony and the kids and I are coming over for lunch. Surprise. That's what Jesus does. But, but he's not just meeting, he's not worried about his physical needs. He's seizing somebody, a hunger to, to find repentance and reconciliation, to be restored to the kingdom. I mean, this is what, when Jesus invites children to come to him, it's not just because he's a nice guy. It's because he wants to say the kingdom of God is wider than the world has said, and those who have been pushed to the outside are invited in. Those who have been said, you're not yet worthy, you get to come. You get a prime place. In fact, he goes on to say, you've got to be like these kids to inherit the kingdom. So, so, so there's always this depth. There's, there's seeing beyond what's just at the surface. So we come to a scripture this morning, Luke chapter 10. And it's a contrast between two sisters, Mary and Martha. And I think what we see here is we see one sister that's learning how to see deeper, learning how to see a spiritual truth, learning how to see a deep invitation, and one who's still at the surface level, 
who hasn't gotten there yet. The challenge for us is how do we learn to begin to see deeper? How do we challenged to begin to see in, a, in, in, in the in a, have a depth perception in our spiritual walk with God. So let's, let's go there because I think what we see is one who's starting to learn how to see like Jesus sees. So the story, Mary and Martha, begins Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And our prayer is that God would bless these moments and these words and his, the reading of his word and draw us close to him in Christ. Amen. At its surface, at its surface, it is a very simple story for us to understand. Jesus and the disciples are passing through Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. The home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus becomes kind of a base camp for Jesus. He's there frequently. We know he had a special relationship with, with the sisters and with Lazarus. And so as they're coming through and they're giving a place to stay, Martha is playing the role of the host. She's doing the things that, that culturally were expected She's, she's welcoming and inviting and making sure her guests are properly cared for because that was her role, and that was some of the cultural expectations. So she's doing it, but as she's doing it, she's seething. She's getting more and more angry because there are three people that live in this house. Mary, and then there's, I mean, there's Martha, and then there's Lazarus. Well, Lazarus wouldn't have been expected to be doing these things. It was a sexist culture. So, so, yeah, Lazarus doesn't have to do the housework. But Martha has a sister named Mary. And as Martha's working, Mary's not working. And Martha's getting madder and madder and madder because she feels that Mary's not carrying her weight. She's not doing her part. She's leaving it all on her. And if you have ever been in that situation, and most of us probably have, we can understand Martha's anger. If you've ever been in a situation where you're supposed to be sharing the responsibility for a task or a job with people who you don't think are carrying their fair share, you are going to get angry. If you have brothers and sisters, you have lived this reality. You have. You've had jobs to do where you felt that they're not doing as much as you are doing. I know that. My brother's sitting right here. And he didn't do nothing growing up. I got him because he can't say nothing from down there. But, but you know what that's like. Or, or a project at school where it's a group project. And everybody's sharing their smile. And everybody gets the same grade. And somebody's not carrying their weight. Or a project at work. Or whatever the situation is. If we just stop right there, we get why Martha's angry. 
We can understand her resentment toward her sister for not stepping up. So she does the only thing she knows how to do. She tattles. I mean, that's, that's what she does. Jesus is the teacher. He's the, he's the authority figure. He's the rabbi. He's the one who has the power to say to Mary, get it in gear. Change your behavior. Do what your sister Martha expects you to do because that's the crux. Martha wants Mary to behave a certain way. So she rats her out. Now, full confession. I used to do this. I did. And I've got to be because my dad's sitting on the front row too. When, when we were growing up and, and my brothers, and, and as, as a lot of you know, I'm the oldest of three. David's the youngest. I'm the oldest. There's one in between. And, and growing up, fortunately, by being the oldest, I, was, um, I could impose my will physically on the other two. I was bigger and stronger for a while. That's not a reality anymore, but it was growing up. The problem was if I did that, if they made me mad and I reacted physically, I could get in trouble. So usually not so much David, but it happened with Brian, who's the one that's closest in age. He would do something I didn't like. He'd do something that made me mad. He'd do something I didn't think was fair, whatever it is. And I couldn't handle it the way I wanted to. So I tried to get the authority figure involved. So a lot of times this is what I would do. I would go down to the church, which was right down the street. And the, the parsonage and the church were on the same property. And I'd walk in dad's office and he'd be working. He'd say, what's up? And I'd just scowl. And I'd sit down and I'd sulk or I'd stomp or I'd do something to make it very clear I was not happy. Also, I could get the question I wanted to get. What's wrong? Now, why? Because I didn't want to just narc. But if dad asked, (laughs) then I had to be honest, right? You can't lie to your father. So... I'd get, what's wrong? And then I could spill my guts. Oh, Brian or David or whatever they'd done. And my hope was I could get him to do what I wanted him to do. Now, here's what I'll tell you. My success rate was about the same as Martha's. Usually it didn't work. Because I've learned on the opposite side, parents are a little smarter than we give them credit to for when we're, when we're young. And he knew what I was doing. But the idea was I wanted to manipulate behavior. I wanted to coerce behavior. That's what Martha's doing. She wants Mary to step up. We understand why. But notice how Jesus responds to her tactic. When she says, make my sister help me. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But a few things are needed, or indeed only one. Some of the translations will read, only one thing is needed, or only one thing is essential. Only one thing is essential. Mary has chosen what is better, and it won't be taken away from her. That language is important. Jesus is not devaluing Martha. Jesus is not saying that what Martha is doing and her attention to being a good host and providing for her guests, he's not saying that's not appreciated or important. But Jesus says that Mary has chosen what is better. She's chosen the one thing that is most important. She has seen something. She has seen a depth. She's seen a reality. She's seen an opportunity that Martha has missed. And that's where the the, the depth perception comes in. Mary has perceived something. Martha hasn't yet gotten. Because while Martha is concerned about her to-do list and what she has to do, Mary is 
seizing an opportunity of who she gets to be. Okay, it's not so much about what she has to do, but who she gets to be. Martha sees responsibility, but, but what Mary sees is an opportunity. And that opportunity is to sit at the feet of Jesus. See, Martha might have liked that, but she thought she had to do all these other things first. And she missed the more important thing. And I wonder, self-reflectively, how often I do that. How often I let the things I have to do for Jesus as a pastor get in the way of the opportunity God gives me to be with Jesus. To check off the work that needs to be done. And in doing so, I'm missing the more important thing. I'm missing what is essential. One of the most powerful invitations Jesus gives us is to sit at his feet. One of those powerful opportunities we have is to spend time with Jesus. But so often we miss it because we're so busy. I don't have time for that. I've got to get stuff done. I'm busy. You're busy. Where are we going to find time for that? I love Martin Luther's quote. He talks in, in one of his writings. He says, you know, you should work from early to late. Work. Be productive with your time. And then he said, you know, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I have so much to do, I will spend the first three hours in prayer. Martin Luther was a prayer warrior. I'd like to tell you I pray for three hours, but I'm not going to lie to you. But, but it's not so much that, that I'm, I'm giving you a description of what you, you need to do in, in the detail. But in the principle, Martin Luther was saying, I'm so busy that I have to make the most important thing the most important thing before I get to the to-do list. I have to spend time with Jesus. In 1918, Charles Schwab was the president of Bethlehem Steel. And as the president of Bethlehem Steel, he wanted to, um, his managers to be more productive. That's what a, a leader does. He wanted to figure out ways for them to be more productive. So he invited a consultant, a business consultant in by the name of Ivy Lee. And he sat down and he had a meeting with Ivy Lee. And Ivy Lee said to him, he said, Mr. Schwab, I can make your managers over 50% more productive. And Charles Schwab, being the businessman he was, said, great, how much is that going to cost me? And Ivy Lee said, tell you what, you let me try. You let me put it into practice and you gauge it. And if three months it works, you pay me whatever you think it's worth. He said, okay. So Ivy Lee sat with the managers at, at Bethlehem Steel. And he gave them a, a principle to shape their busyness, if you will. And it's not radical. It's probably something you've heard before. But it was new to them. And he said, this is what I want you to do to the managers. That every day, I want you to create a list of the six most important things you need to do. The six most important things you need to do today. And after you've put those six things on paper, you number them. One being the most important. Number two, the next three, and so forth. And he says, then you start your day every day and you begin with number one. And you don't do anything else until you finish number one. Then you move to number two. Then you move to number three and, and so on. And don't worry if you don't get everything done. Whatever you don't get done, you carry over to the next day. You create your list and you do it again. Get the most important thing done first. At the end of three months, Charles Schwab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000. 
1918. So the equivalent today would be about $400,000 because he realized the value from a business perspective of his managers doing the most important thing first before anything else got accomplished. Now, what's true professionally is true spiritually in a different way. We need to make the most important thing the most important thing. Um, Stephen Covey does the same thing. He talks about big rocks in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Do the most important thing first. Well, before we worry about what we have to do as Christians, our call is to nurture the relationship with Jesus that we're called into. That is the most, if we lose that, we've lost the foundation of our faith because our faith isn't about a bunch of things we do or a bunch of rules that we follow. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And when we lose the time to sit at his feet, when we miss those invitations, when we don't see them because we see height, we see length, but we see with no depth, we miss the very foundation that our faith is built upon, a relationship with our Savior. Mary sees that. Martha doesn't. And Mary also sees something else. And that is that this is not just an invitation. It is a radical invitation. And this is really easy for us to miss. But don't, don't allow the important and significant words to pass by. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Because you know who sat at the foot of a teacher? Who do you expect would sit at the foot of a teacher? A child or a student. A student would sit at the foot of the teacher. That was the position. When the teacher would teach, the rabbi would teach, the students would sit at his feet. Now in the time of Jesus, you know who was not often permitted to be a student of a rabbi? A woman. Very little historical evidence of rabbis ever teaching women because you would teach a student so a student would become a teacher. But yet, Jesus over and over challenges social expectations and social norms. And in Luke chapter 8, what Mary certainly knew was says something very powerful but very subtle. It says that as Jesus went, his 12 disciples and the women who followed him went also. At the end of the Gospels, when Jesus is crucified and the disciples, the 12 disciples are scattered and hiding, it says there at the cross were the women who followed him. Jesus gives an invitation not just to men to be his students, but to women, and Mary seizes that opportunity. Jesus over and over challenges. It goes back to the example of children. Jesus over and over is saying, the world may say you're on the outside, but I'm bringing you in. I'm welcoming you in. It doesn't matter what your sex is. It doesn't matter what you, what you look like or what your limitations may be. You're invited into this relationship. And that's important for us because sometimes we get beat down by the world. We get devalued. We allow those voices in our head that say, we're not valuable. We're not worthy. We're not gifted enough. We're not important enough. Why would Jesus invite me in? And Jesus says over and over, those ways are not my ways. You're invited to sit at my feet. Mary sees that radical invitation. She takes the opportunity. She does what is most important. She does what is not better, but what is best. She sits at the feet of Jesus. How are we intentionally taking times in our faith, in our growth, in our spirituality to see the opportunities God gives us to sit at his feet and to make it a priority in our lives? 
when you pray, when you intentionally build into your life opportunities to pray, and not only to share with God what is on your heart, but to listen to the voice of God as He speaks His truth into your lives, when you take time to pray, you are sitting at the feet of Jesus. When you study the Word of God, when you get into the Scriptures and become familiar with the stories and how these stories communicate who God is and who we are, Genesis through Revelation, when you spend time here, you sit at the feet of Jesus. And when you take time in your lives to express to God your gratitude and your thankfulness for the blessings in your life and for His work in your life and for His grace that has covered you, when you take time to worship you sit at the feet of Jesus. And I don't mean just here. This is a powerful place of worship. But you know what? Sometimes it might be by yourself sitting in any number of places where God calls you and gives you an invitation to worship. I've had powerful worship experiences in places you'd never expect and I never expected because God caught me in a place of, of willingness to hear Him. We sit at the feet of Jesus. How well, faithfully, obediently, and frequently do we sit at the feet of Jesus? I know you're busy. I know you are. So am I. But when we don't put first things first, we begin to see two-dimensionally and we lose spiritual depth. Mary, Martha hadn't gotten there yet, but Mary had. She saw her opportunity. And she chose what was best. Too often, I'm like Martha, and I want to be more like Mary. I hope as you evaluate your life and your walk and your faith, you will find those opportunities to be a little less Martha and a little more Mary. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, uh, we pray that you'd help us to see. I mean, just, just help us to see the opportunities the, the moments that you invite us into a relationship and that we can see things deeper in a more profound and powerful and, and impactful ways because there's so much depth to the experiences of our lives and to our relationship with you. Help us to find those moments to sit at your feet and be strengthened by your presence. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.